Hey everybody, it's Courtney Barriger, your host of Environmental Style Now, the A to Z on all that is sustainable fashion. Coming to you live today from Joshua Tree. Pretty cool. Now on this episode of ES Now, Michaela Grace, the founder of Graceline Institute, is here to offer a discussion on how our energetic fields, that is our mind-body-spirit connection, directly affects the planet around us and how to heal and amplify it for ourselves and for Mother Nature. Hello, I'm Courtney Barriger, and this is ES Now. My next guest offers profound wisdom. From decades of training with multicultural spiritual healers to founding her own center, Graceline Institute, devoted to elevating the collective energetic field, Michaela Grace connects the dots between caring for one's own mind, body, spirit, and stewardship of the planet. Through Graceline Institute, Michaela offers artistic encounters with unified field theory thought leadership, neuroscience, epigenetics, and emotional intelligence. This is one episode you will not want to miss. Let's jump right in. So the Graceline Institute is an emotional intelligence and consciousness school. And we essentially are all about yin practices in teaching spiritual sciences. So we take... Um, sort of epigenetics, neuroscience, and unified field theory and present it in ways that you're having direct experience with interactive art. And our mission in doing that is helping people realize that we're moving out of the era of sort of the stage on stage where there's someone above you to fix you. And we're hoping that all of humanity moves into higher states of ecology where we realize that there's great laterality and connection in every species having sort of equal merit on the planet in terms of the ecosystem and the inner microbiome even, sort of like allowing each species to hold their place. And so with that, we believe that every human has the ability to maybe heal themselves and we're not meant to bow to outside an outside pill or parent or politician or even a doctor or a healer to sort of rescue us from ourselves. And so... Our tagline for the Institute uh, is really the graceful kind of three-act arc of human development, which is consciousness, equality, ecology. And what we mean by that is that we're trying to raise consciousness and emotional intelligence while we sort of drop our personal story and personal narrative or the trappings of our, our memory and our wounding so that we get to that middle way and that sweet spot of equality where we realize we're neither more important nor less important than anyone else. And then we finally tune ourselves to being a beautiful instrument, serving all of humanity um, and ecology, where we realize that we can gracefully sort of give back to the planet by being a higher version of ourselves. So our mission is to really um, increase emotional intelligence while we're helping people hopefully fall in love with themselves on Earth. That is so cool. What are some of the practices that you do um, for the... Uh, you kind of called it like, you didn't call it improv theater. You called it, um, yeah, it, it, yeah. It's experiential art. Um, yeah, what are, what are some of those 
practices? Um, yeah, great question. So we take uh, sort of ascension school or mystery school teachings and really ancient practices and kind of fuse them in the modern world with technology and interactive art. And so all of our curriculum is original curriculum and our art experiences are all original, but they're sort of a fusion of fractal films that induce an altered brainwave, uh, sort of a, a heart coherence and an altered brainwave state, but without the use of plant medicines or external substances. And sometimes we use AVE machines, which are audiovisual entrainment devices. We use different sound technologies uh, based on quantum field mechanics. We use um, something we call MoveMed, which is movement as medicine, and a BQ technique, which stands for body intelligence, where you start to kind of map trauma or memory or even like um, responses that we might have where we're reactionary rather than primary if we have like trauma in the, autom in the autonomic nervous system where you're in any kind of flight, fight, or freeze pattern because of uh, emotional patterning, mental patterning, actual trauma to the physical body. We're really teaching you through interactive art encounters with films, with breath work, with meditation, with these machines, and really specifically with movement. We're teaching you how to really elegantly and gracefully get yourself out of those patterns that no longer serve. So we're breaking habits kind of from the inside out basically wow how um how can someone sign up for one of these and how often do you think people need to do this for their for their lives um so they can find out about like retreats and that sort of thing just by going to our website gracelineinstitute.org and um we do things in a lot of different ways so we have online programming we have cleanse homeopathic cleanses where you're actually like not that we care what human bodies look like but because we're a microcosm for the earth if we take toxicity memory energy story out of the body a lot of people don't realize emotional memory is stored in the fat cells so sometimes we're taking people through 30-day cleanses that's one way to experience the work and get emotional intelligence training and as you dissolve those fat cells you're dissolving all the memory um heavy metals, anesthesia, chemicals, uh, food dyes, preservatives, pesticides, anything that is sort of trapped in the body or helping the earth by becoming a healthier version of self um, so that you have more energy to go out there and sort of make your art in the world and, um, and give back to the world. So sometimes it's with cleanses, sometimes it's with retreats, sometimes it's just a, a daily practice with recordings and things like that. And, you know, everyone is different. I think it's important sometimes to really balance the macro and the micro. So a lot of people are chasing sort of a sledgehammer big experience with like a plant medicine, for example, which I would consider a macro experience. And I think those are really important to kind of pull yourself out of your life and go inward and feel connected to all that is. But we're not meant to be in states of awe or wonderment or escape permanently. We're really meant to be embodied. And so what I love about our institute is we're teaching people uh, to have like a daily micro practice. And that's also as a devotional environmentalist, what I would hope that uh, people choose to do with sustainability is really understand that in the micro movement of every choice that we make, especially as consumers, we're voting with our dollar, we're voting with our frequency, we're voting with our um, identity, really. And I think 
the core uh, sort of the core teaching that I would love to to plant seed for about identity is that um, hopefully we're being primary rather than reactionary in our lives, where we're really creating identity from the inside out. And my definition for Graceline is uh, really when outward action is in alignment with inner virtue. So can we actually sort of live that highest version of self and live a higher consciousness or higher emotional intelligence, meaning that we're not out reacting with the limbic brain and reacting from sort of a killer be killed, me versus you, right versus wrong, red versus blue, sort of dualistic state of being out there in the world. Mm. But we're really realizing that everything we do to our bodies, we do to the earth, um, everything that we eat, all the media that we consume goes right back into the soil, the food, the air, the water supply, goes back into the collective consciousness, goes back into the ether between all of us. And so if we can make more loving and responsible choices, even with the products we consume, the media we consume, then we're actually embodying a more harmonic state for all of humanity. And if we can sustain that, like a really beautiful piece of music, if we can hold the music of that for longer, we're actually evolving our entire species faster. Huh. And so and so, in terms of consciousness and a spiritual practice, I really believe in the microdosing <laughs> sort of elements of living, <laughs> meaning in every, in every little micro movement, right, in my day-to-day life, am I embodying what I claim I believe in? Wow. When, um, when we met, well, actually it wasn't right when we met, but it was the day that you held a ceremony that I was there for. Um, you said something so beautiful to me and I'll never forget it. Um, it was, it was how, you know, do we expect to protect the environment and heal, heal the world when we can't even heal ourselves? And I thought that was just so impactful. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, I have sort of a a story that I tell about that um, because sometimes we have this idealized idea of what we feel about the earth. And, um, and so I, I use this as a teaching tool or as an example, but say you're out, you know, on your favorite trail and you're an earth lover and you're out on a hike And you're underneath a tall set of trees and this like delicate little baby bird, like a little fledgling falls from a nest from high up in the tree and lands right in front of you on the trail. I don't know any human that I've ever met that would just say, oh, that bird is totally effed, right? Like she's not going to survive that fall. So like would go kick the nest out, right? Every human I've ever met would rush up to that nest and see how they can help and want to help like the tenderness and the sweetness and the innocence of that baby bird. And yet what I see is that we really kick ourselves when we're down and that humans can be so self-forgetting or self-hateful or self-deprecating. And we abuse our bodies and we abuse each other's each other when we create animization or victimization in any way. So victimization is making myself wrong or bad or being stuck in a moment. Animization is making you wrong or bad or being stuck in animosity. And so if we, go to the surplus or the deficiency of that and we're stuck in any thought forms of superiority or inferiority and if we're being brutal to the self then we're actually being brutal to the wild we're being brutal to the wilderness to the earth because we're a part of that ecosystem we're a part of the wild 
And so my dream is that everyone is a little bit sweeter and more tender to themselves and that we don't kick ourselves when we're down and we treat ourselves like that little baby bird because if we can create that kind of self-kindness or self-care or health from the inside out, we're more likely to be an ecologist. We're more likely to emanate that frequency or that vibration into our choice point technology, right? Meaning like what kind of inner technology are we applying to the choices we make? And we're more likely to start caring about the earth. We'll have more bandwidth to care. So if everyone is in their own pain and suffering, they don't have like a lot of extra juice, right? To go out there and care about, you know, whether or not the Tupperware or they're purchasing is good for the planet or whether or not using a straw is good for the planet. When everyone is in crisis, they don't necessarily make sustainable choices. And so um, my, my dream is that we help each other get out of crisis and that has to begin with ourselves. That's so beautiful. I think it's so poignant for today's culture too. Um, God, the past six years I've been so dualistic and so angry and people are more, I don't know, just aggressive, I've noticed, than ever before. I mean, I was actually at the Grand Canyon, so you would imagine it's a state of awe, but people were being so rude. I couldn't believe. Oh, my gosh, I couldn't believe it. And that was just sort of, to me, like a real, I don't know, just reveal of the state of the heart of, I mean, maybe not the world, but at least our country um, yeah. So I think what you're doing is just so special and so relevant to right now. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, I, but, uh, you know, I had a similar experience where you might be at the Grand Canyon and someone is like elbowing another person to get the picture for Instagram and they're not even like present to the wind or the canyon or the beauty because they need to like prove that they were there. And we're almost doing so much image crafting where we're almost in split realities of like, here's how I look online and here's how I'm presenting myself in this little avatar on Instagram or, you know, um, it's like this rush or this push or this urgency to somehow prove the self. And we're not being that kind to one another, but there's also just, yeah, more than ever, like um, we're at odds with each other. You know, it's almost like politics are heightened and all of these different movements are heightened. And I think for me anyway, I have this deep gnosis or inner knowing that I think that sometimes when it feels like that pressure is building, that perturbation or um, perturbation is like a scientific word for like heat time and pressure, right? To perturb something, to agitate, to bother, to create friction um, is how everything grows. Everything in nature grows under pressure, right? Mm, If you go to the gym, build muscle, you're actually tearing the muscle to grow it. So I'm hoping <laughs> that what you experienced with the Grand Canyon <laughs> and this like intensity that humans are having with one another, I'm hoping that that means we're right on the precipice of a breakthrough. Because I think that growing tension is about like the crescendo and the, um, the big booming energy coming into uh, transformation, right? That we have to sort of like stress ourselves out. If you think about like every breakup, you learn so much about yourself and you kind of call in higher caliber relationship, right? Every divorce makes people, in my opinion, better at love. A broken bone grows seven times stronger than had it not broken. Hmm. So 
you know, out in nature, you see this law of perturbation. It's also called a law of dissipated structures. You see that under stress, we actually always evolve and that we're only moving forward and never backwards. And so rather than focusing on all the political strife and the right and the wrong and the, the big tensions that I see out there in the world, I try to focus on that algorithm that stress always leads to growth. And so I hope that this tension is really about transformation waiting to happen. You know, thinking about, you know, the world on the, um, I don't know, as a macrobiome, you know, it's interesting mm -hmm. that, you know, all of us feeling the pressure of the, the pandemic, that was a global event. And I wonder yeah. if that might be some sort of catalyst for, you know, like you're saying this, the pressure of the seed and then, Ooh, there's life. Yeah. There's well, a... I definitely have some fear. <laughs> <laughs> I have some fear about the pandemic and there's sweet theories because I try to root everything in the sweetness of nature, but I do think it was an opportunity to evolve our immunity and um, evolve our connectivity. But what I mostly believe about the pandemic is that it was this ultimate, like if you really think of the world as this beautiful kind of like platform or uh, virtual reality for us to figure out ourselves, like the big matrix theory or this, this is all an illusion and we're here practicing, right? If you think about it that way, I think the pandemic was meant to teach us literally that we're better together and that we all need each other. So like a plumber isn't any less important than a political leader. It was meant to be this like unifying moment where we realized that everything is global. There's really no country lines, right? There's no dividing lines. There's no separation between each of us. And in the same way that you have a hundred trillion cells, they're not competing. They're not comparing, right? The liver cells don't hate the skin cells because they get to hang out in the sunshine more than the liver cells, right? <laughs> um, you don't have this grid or this fight you know, where the liver cells are like, I got to deal with all the junk and I got to detox and the, you know, the skin cells get to hang out in the sun and have fun. There really, there isn't animosity or animization. They're all collaborating so that like sweet little you moves forward and thrives. Right. And so I think that nature shows us that we don't really live in a competitive environment. We are meant to live in a collaborative one. And so just like there's those hundred trillion cells in your body collaborating to move you forward, I think every single human is one cell in the wider organism of humanity and that we're meant to really kind of like get with the program and start collaborating and start having a unifying view of each other from every country, every walk of life, all socioeconomic and sort of racial divides are actually illusion and that we're meant to really like make space for everyone. And for everyone's gifts as well. And I think that whether we see it or not, that is where we're moving. Some people get really depressed and bummed out and they don't think we're making progress or they're really worried about the state of the world. Mm -hmm. But I actually, rather than putting your energy on all the things that you think are wrong with the world or panicking about global warming or wars or anything like that, a better use of the electricity in one's own body and a better use of the creativity, right? And the consciousness in one's own body is to dream the future that you want for all of us and only put your focus on the world you're trying to create rather than being so fear-based about the world that you think is fighting itself. 
Mm, it's and like, so, yeah. Yes, I know that seems like a roundabout way about COVID, but you know, <laughs> I think some people got really fear based during the pandemic, and some people loved the time off or felt more connected to the things that mattered, or a lot of people left their jobs, right? And a lot of people reprogrammed or reprioritized their lives. And, um, and I think, uh, you know, making connection a priority makes us all better at being in the world. Why do you think it's so easy for people to turn to fear instead of love? You know, I think it's like um, uh, just a neural pathway that is more normalized and habituated. And I think um, that we have to really choose with administrative authority over selves to burn new neural pathways, right? We have to basically interrupt a thought, interrupt a fear, interrupt a complaint uh, or negativity and really choose uh, to clean up, clean up our thoughts, clean up our feelings. And so I think it's just so much easier, to be honest. Like if you think about, I mean, I'm a mountain girl, so this is a, <laughs> it's a mountain metaphor, but if you watch the, um, the snow melt in mud season, right? When you watch the, the snow of the season melt, it almost always will create the same season springs as last year because it's just so much easier for water to run down a pathway it has already carved out Mm. and so I think unless you really create new pathways you're going to go into the easiest path because uh, it's just what habit does in the human form and so I think if people are in the habit of being angry if their home base is anger they'll always find something to be angry about if their home base is gratitude they can always find something to be grateful about and so I think that we just create like a home-based emotion and we lean towards that emotion. And what I'm trying to do and what my team is trying to do in the teaching of emotional intelligence is to get people to really understand that every emotion that you feel is a chemical and you made it. And so wouldn't you rather make emotions that are like for you rather than against you? And um, can we take responsibility for those habits and those emotions so that we're actually creating a better world from the inside out? And a great payoff, the secondary payoff anyway, is that it creates higher happiness. Um, I remember when we were doing our ceremony and we were doing breath work and laying down and like all these deep breaths for like, oh my God, like an hour. I don't even know how long we were doing it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And there was dancing happening and there were drums and it was amazing. Um, I just, I remember you talking about uh, the, the vagus nerve, vagal nerve, something. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it, how, you know, stimulating that and like getting all of this juice in the nervous system back up to the brain was one way to kind of reset those flows that you're talking about, but like kind of faster, <laughs> like an expedited version of it. Yeah. Well, there's like, there's a couple of reasons why that works. And so, with Taoist sex, with Tantra, with mystery school teachings, ascension teachings, even with Chinese medicine, there's all these systems where, you know, um, in Buddhist tradition and Taoist tradition, uh, spinning, right? Uh, spinning one's own access. All of these different traditions are doing the same thing, which is to try to take disorder back into order in the body. And so what a lot of us don't realize, and this is really borrowing from, you know, greater minds than me and beautiful doctors, but um, Dr. Porges, 
uh, created um, or sort of named uh, polyvagal theory. And so he really looked at how trauma registers in the vagus nerve. And that is the nerve going through the whole body from the perineum to the pineal gland. It's dipping into every organ and it's like the Nile River of neurological data, right? Mm -hmm. This nerve that's sending signal everywhere and it's sort of like sending and receiving signal all the time. And so when we've had any sort of separation, abandonment, isolation, trauma, abuse, you name it, um, we have this flight, fight, or freeze response that really uh, makes us leave the prefrontal cortex and makes us leave sort of the, the wiser part of our uh, that front uh, part of the brain and go into the limbic brain where we're highly emotional or reactive or we're just trying to stay safe, right? And so doing any style of breath work, which is, you know, there's so many practitioners out there doing beautiful work, so many different traditions, uh, but it's very common for people to try to get like the plasma of the cerebral spinal fluid um, into the three chambers that, that hold brain cells. So the belly brain, the sensory neurites of the back of the heart, which are actually brain cells in the back of the heart, and also to the brain that's in your head. This belly heart brain sort of channel, if we can get the vagus nerve to reset, if we can get um, cerebral spinal fluid to flow faster and stronger, if we can get kundalini energy, prana, ki, chi, all these names for the same thing, all that we're really trying to do is get everything back into a flow state. So anywhere in nature where water has gone dormant, like a pond, stagnation makes room for infection, right? But if you have electrons moving really, really fast, um, so think of like a glacier with high runoff or a river that's moving fast with high runoff, there's more electrons, right? There's even more negative ions, right? Where like the waves of the ocean hit the beach, for example. So those ions are sort of floating around, waiting to be donated to any human body that walks by. You just sort of grab at them and have this boost of energy. So what breath is really about is getting all of that electricity to get things moving again so that we're not stagnant, not with our old wounds, our old thoughts, our old beliefs. And so I know I'm like a boot camper. (laughs) My, My breath work can be really hard and we're asking you to do a lot of different practices all at once. But the goal of that is that you get things moving again and you're in spin and flow state, so you're not stuck in a moment, you're not stuck in a story, you're not stuck in a traumatic event. And that's really where the vagus nerve comes into play. Flow, flow state. Um, I love that. I've, it's funny, I've always associated flow state with just kind of this like, oh, like super hyper awareness and like confidence and walking through the world. Now I'm thinking of it as like the river of your body is actually just flowing a lot faster. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and also um, to me, the ultimate form of flow state, and it's a very high frequency in terms of emotional intelligence for a human to be in. But if you can ever come into a state of curiosity, um, curiosity keeps you on the revolutionary edge of your own flow state. Um, and this is a, a Taoist teaching, but I am Taoist. So um, this idea that basically in nature, whatever is certain and brittle breaks and whatever is in flow grows, right? So if you think about like a branch is brittle, you can easily break it. But something like water in nature is always moving and it doesn't have any judgment of going into the darkest cave or the deepest recesses or going super high up into a cloud, right? Water has no judgment. It's just completely at peace to be in flow. And when it's in flow, it has vitality in life. And the faster the flow, 
the higher the alacrity and vitality of that water, meaning the healthier the water. And so to me, one of the best ways to be in a flow state is to not think we have our mind made up and to not be sure or certain of anything, but to really keep seeking. So curiosity and having a seeker's mind and a seeker's heart to me is the ultimate flow state. And it keeps us on the edge of our own process work, the edge of our own growth all the time. You know, um, there was a, a time in my life where I was really, really depressed and sad. And I just remember I kept thinking of this one word that I was like, this is what I want. And it was the word wonder. And the, the word wonder, though, it's like it combines like awe where you're kind of taken by something, but it adds curiosity to it, which is, I just yeah. think, whoa. That is just such a powerful state of being, and it's really hard to get there. <laughs> yes. But about it, you were there all the time when you were a kid. Oh, yeah. Because kids see the whole world is new, and they just want to absolutely experience everything, feel anything, like even rain falling on their skin or snow falling on them for, like, the first time is, like, they're, like, giggling little teacups banging into each other, right, <laughs> bumping in all, like, rolling on the ground, falling down. Like if you were in that much joy and wonderment as a kid, really you were just embracing the unknown that we mm. think it's hard to get there adults. But I think sometimes it's just in the safety of saying, I don't know, I want to go find out, right? Like not thinking we know everything, not thinking we have it all figured out and being in the vulnerability of not knowing and actually embracing the unknown in some way is sort of the key to wonderment or the key to curiosity is mm. it's super decent of us to say we don't have all the answers, you know, mm. there's higher like decent ability and sort of um, being willing to learn something new all the time. Like uh, to be humble in that sense of like, Oh wow, I'm kind of a blank canvas or and this tabula rasa that can still be painted upon, right? Something can still surprise me. Something can wake me up. Something can teach me. And the more that we go out into the world as a blank canvas, the faster we grow. Wow. Um, so I am curious because this is a podcast about sustainability and fashion. So, yeah. um, how can this mind, body, spirit, oneness heal our relationship with fashion and its toxic relationship with the environment and then some and then some and then some? Because there's so much that is that we could even touch upon for the fashion industry alone. But um, I would just love to hear your thoughts. Oh, my goodness. I have so many thoughts. So one <laughs> is, as, <laughs> as an EQ teacher, I will tell you... Um, that I think that we use fashion a lot of times to image craft and to cultivate identity, right? So we're trying to say to the world, like, I'm a certain vibe if I dress like this, right? And we're trying to look good and we're so obsessed with like outward appearance. And so the frequency of what you're doing is not about what you're doing or how you're doing it. It's about the intention and motivation behind why you're doing it, right? And so if you really know who you are and you're expressing who you are through fashion. That's beautiful through color, right? Through frequency, through sound, through music, like how you move in the world is, is an act of art in my opinion. And so I think that 
using fashion in that way is really beautiful. But if you think outward beauty or uh, outward perfection or how you dress or how much money you have or how successful you are defines you, it's like that's a way of living that is ripe with infection, you know? Mm. And so just any piece of medicine can too much of it might be harmful to you and the right dose might be a cure, might be helpful to you. Um, I think we can have a really healthy relationship to fashion if it's used for artistic expression of inward identity. Mm. But if it's used to outwardly define identity, it can sometimes work against us. And then from an ecological perspective, um, again, I truly believe that we're voting with our dollar. And so if we are uh, wearing basically clothing that was not ethically sourced, right? If there is child labor involved in the making of it, if there are dyes that are going into our soil supply, for example, or going into the waters near a factory, um, then we are participating in that infection or in that illness or in that dis-ease of harmonic accords with the planet, with the environment. And so I'm not meaning to stress people out about fashion, but I I think if you know who you are and you're using it to emanate the, the grace of self-love and the artist that you are, right? I think every human is an artist. Then I think that's beautiful. If you are completely unaware of the impact that your clothing choices or your media choices or all of your consumer choices make, then that's like being asleep in the world, right? And if you're fully aware of it and making those choices anyway, then you're contributing to a problem rather than being on the side of the solution. And so I think it's this artful dance with just being aware, right, of the industry itself and aware of how much it's been used across time as self-identification. And I think fashion is really fused with identity. And it's our responsibility to be sort of like pregnant with the question, right? So like, how am I um, making sustainable choices or not? How am I making choices from you know, a place of insecurity when it comes to clothing or um, accessories or, you know, how I'm presenting myself in the world. So I think as long as we're always asking important questions, we're, again, staying on that evolutionary edge of self-development. Wow. Yeah, the identity in fashion is so interesting because it's like this external shell of a costume that we put on like we do it for ourselves but we also do it to find each other you know like oh for sure he dresses I mean, like this so much, yeah yeah right like that's one of like my people <laughs> I them and it really is like little beacons you know um that we put out there for community so I think that that's really important and should be celebrated but I do think that we can do all of that with sustainability as well Yes, it becomes it becomes a responsibility at a certain point once you've gained a certain amount of awareness. And I mean, I remember when it happened to me, I uh, I was sort of just buying anything, everything, didn't care. And then I had the opportunity to be a creator of fashion. And that was actually the first time that I asked myself, wait a second, if I'm going to be contributing... Yeah. How, how then do I do this better? How then can I use this beautiful art form to 
enrich the world instead of just taking from it because it is a materialistic art form and it's so um i mean like because you can't make fashion without taking from the earth so there's that level of you know <laughs> guilt in some ways which is just very strange for me but sometimes i'm like god should i be making fashion at all because this is not even sustainable to do this that's impossible it's an yeah. impossible task um but then I remind myself, no, okay, we have to, we have to wear clothes. We don't have fur, you know, <laughs> and it's a, be you know, it is a beautiful form of art. So, okay, I'm back in, I'm back in. Um, yeah. And I think that what you're doing is, is sort of like um, swinging that pendulum uh, into the middle way, which I think all health is found in the middle, right? So if you think about like in Chinese medicine, we call it surplus and efficiency. So like too much water, not enough water, both can kill you. Too much potassium, not enough potassium, both can kill you, right? Mm. So in terms of the ego, ego, not enough ego, both are dangerous, right? I think as you're asking yourself these questions as an artist, we really want to come to that grace line or that middle way of not being too extreme or hard on yourself. So it's like, well, I want to make art, but if that, if it's impossible to do it well, then should I not make it at all, right? Like, or like making it is so hard or is there any way to wear clothing that's not damaging? Like if you're swinging to those extremes, you're being super, super hard on yourself. And so all that each of us can do is really do our absolute best in the moment. And I think it's profound that you as an artist and as a clothing maker and as a thought leader, even the fact that you're asking these questions or creating discourse and kind of elevated dialogue with another human about it at least you're on the path towards wanting it to be more sustainable or cleaner or sort of leaner. And, um, you know, that is how all transformation begins with that inception point idea. So you might not have all the answers yet about how to do it well, but the fact that you want to do it well means you're burning a new neural network for that to be a possibility out there in the world, you know, and you're not going to get it right. Like your first year in and, you know, everybody, I mean, all the actors that I know in LA are like, who am I to think I can play this part? It terrifies me. And then they know, like, if I'm afraid of into it, right, I'm going to learn something from it. And I'm going to bring something to it that only I could bring. And it's going to teach me something to be in that role. So really, that's like a vital exploration of one's own humanity. And so in the same way that an actor has to like play in that role, and they might be terrified, and they might doubt that they're able to do it. But once they do it, they get the relief or payoff of having done it. You know, that as a mechanism for art or an exploration of art is happening in all of the arts, right? And so um, you're just sort of playing in the field of a role or you're playing in the field of being a creator or being a business woman, right? Or being a thought leader. And as long as you just, I don't know how to say this in any better way, but like if you're just dancing with the pregnant question, if you stay in alignment with the question itself, you know that you're at least trying to be of good service. And that's how you'll keep stumbling upon better answers, you know? Mm. You know, this is actually the reason why I started doing this podcast is because I know I don't have all the answers. And I thought, how do I, how do I find the answers? Oh, wow. I can find the answers and share what I find with everyone at the same time. Like how wonderful is that experience? Exactly. 
Yeah. And like every time that you explore with a new person, you're teaching the rest of us. Like we get to listen to it. We get to learn with you. And so I think there's something so profound and sweet about just being willing to ask all the questions as many as you can, you know? How can, um, how can individuals do better in how they incorporate consciousness into their habits? Sorry for a bit of a swing, but. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I think that, um, you know, conscious habits really begin with repetition. Uh, we change habituated behavior with repetition. There's all these statistics that say, like, try something new for 28 days, you know, or you just interrupt um, thinking. So as an EQ coach, I would tell people, like, the most important habits to break are thought form habits and feeling habits. So, like, if you can interrupt a thought, if you're having a negative thought, say no to it three times, interrupt it, replace it with something better, right? Um and then changing behavior can be as simple as like if you open every door with your right hand and you're habituated into using only the right side or dominant side of your body, can you just practice like, oh, for a month I'm going to commit to like trying to use my left hand, you know? So when you actually train yourself to be a pattern interrupter, it's much easier to start applying change in every part of your life. So even if you're going to try to drink more water or take high fructose corn syrup out of your diet or you know, uh, break a habit like drinking coffee or, you know, shop at a place that you believe in the, the value set of the company more than just the easy place or the cheap place, right? No matter what you're trying to do, I think just starting small and actually like playing with the repetition of can I make a goal for myself to do this and can I be patient and peaceful with myself in the fact that breaking habits can sometimes be tough. Um and I'm going to even reorient myself to thinking, oh, it's easy. I just need to practice it, right? I just need to keep trying. I need to make a commitment and try and try and explore and explore. So um, I think for individuals or companies to try to do better, we need to uh, play in the field of intention and sort of set an intention to make, you know, these micro movements of one change at a time or these micro doses of exploration. And all of those little choices add up to big change. Um, you mentioned companies. I know that you have stepped in to do, um, to help with growth and expansion with companies. Tell me a little bit about that and how, um, let's just say you would approach a, a fashion label. Yeah, so um, with sort of our corporate coaching program, um, what we do is when we first head in, so sometimes we do like conflict mediation or, you know, sometimes like a manufacturing department is not necessarily along with the sales department or that sort of thing. And so uh, it does sound very woo-woo and spiritual to say this, but almost every single time that we're starting with a new corporation or a business and trying to help them transform into being more sustainable or more responsible. We don't really dive into the ecology of it. We really look at like family of origin patterns and we really treat every team like they're a family. And you realize that you're recapitulating or you're going through whatever your core wounds are, you sort of marry or you become. So whatever is unhealed in you, you will manifest in team dynamics. You will manifest frequency. Um, and so there's a living holographic field. There's actually an emotional intelligence radiating off of every single company. And so the primary motivations of the leadership that kind of trickles down are creating like 
uh, the frequency of how that business operates, right? How they move in the world. And so we really do a lot of like healing work with like C-level executives and above. And we really do conflict resolution with them personally. And then we get them to engage differently, almost like we're building a geometry uh, between the leadership. And then we trickle down into team mechanics in the larger whole. And then once we've really established a higher emotional intelligence, higher happiness, higher alacrity, higher immunity, sort of a higher energy with the team itself, then we can really approach how they're moving in the world. And then we can help them with rebranding if they need to. We can help them with um, sort of higher consciousness relationship to their communities, to how they're serving, serving local ecology, to how they're like out there in the world with products. And so we really take it from a deeply inward, right? It's like all healing is an inside job. We try to initiate all of the change in that organization with each individual inwardly first, and then we build a higher community. Um, so if you think about it, if you're a healthier cell, think about a human body, right? Um, there's always tends to be more healthier cells than unhealthy cells. We're trying to make each person in a business a healthier cell so that the wider organism has a higher vibration. That is so cool. I've never thought about a corporation as like an energy field of people. But now that you say it, oh, wow. Living organism. And it actually is. I mean, I'm not joking around about this. I could totally nerd out in unified field theory here. But basically, um, every marriage between two people, there's actually a living holographic field. Like we call it the third thing. Um, just like those two people come together and they can make a baby, there's a third thing, and it's a living consciousness that has to be fed like a baby, like you birth a baby between two pe people. So business partners, that's the living third thing, right? There's a field. So there's a holographic field um, in all of those agreements. So you have like inside jokes and you have like an ethos, right? And you have the what we call the culture in a business. Oh, like all of that is a living oh, Okay, I know what you're talking about, that unspoken thing that happens in friendships and relationships where like, oh my God, you're hearing the same song that I am, but there's no reason yeah, why. So wow. Okay. Yeah. Inside jokes. There's a primary language. There's music. Oh, that's our song, right? So in the same way that happens in personal relationship, um, the health of an overall collective, there's actually a collective consciousness that is a living holographic field. I'm not kidding when I say it is a living organism. So every, especially these larger, like monoliths, these huge corporations that have taken over our planet, especially the multinationals, they're a living field and they have actually an emotional intelligence that can be measured no different <sighs> than we measure the wattage light bulb or the volts of a battery. And so what their values are, uh, their reactionary states, their home-based emotions. Oh my gosh, but they're all, like, but they're all psychopaths. That would be like a psychopath though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if they're basically a trickle-down effect. If they're being led by a frequency that is psychopathic or narcissistic, there was a step down on the fact that like 90% of CEOs like actually register on the MPD, the narcissistic personality disorder scale, right? So every single living culture or uh, corporation, there's actually a field that can be measured there. And is a combination, right? Um, there's alchemy there. So it's basically the average of each person's emotional intelligence that averages out. So sometimes like, you know, a janitor who's whistling and who's happy can have like higher EQ than the CEO running the joint, right? Mm -hmm. 
And so that all out in the wash and you have basically um, an average of all the people. So if there's 650 people working under the umbrella of that one building, there's an average consciousness, an average value set, an average frequency that's emanating off of that business. Oh my gosh, we're doomed. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, thankfully there, are, there, thankfully there are more just kind of normal people working underneath all of that to kind of balance that out a little bit. But yeah, wow. That's so interesting. Um, okay, I'm going to swing over again. Are there any emerging technologies that you're excited about? Um, you know, I'm excited about the technologies that are coming back. So I consider movement to be, um, you know, moving meditation, walking meditation, uh, meditation itself. I consider it to be a technology. Um, I teach people uh, ancient practices for walking Camino or like walking pilgrimage, which is across time uh, been like a healing modality and a living technology. I think that we're right on the edge of people really understanding that they can biohack their bodies and that they can monitor uh, their wellness. I mean, there's all these like wearables that are coming out right now where people are monitoring uh, their physical health, their mental health, the frequency coming off of their body, and they're sort of like dosing themselves with homeopathy through machines, right? Um, but rather than being dependent on like audiovisual entrainment devices or like virtual reality machines, I really think we are a technology. And so the more that we can find natural ways to get into heart coherence or altered brainwave states um, and that we don't get lost in virtual realities or lost in media or that we don't like sit on a couch forever watching TV, right? Yeah. I want all of us as humans to be a living technology where we're really like responsible for our own healing work and responsible for just birthing whatever art is the best version of ourselves, whether that. And by art, it doesn't mean if you're like into the sciences, if you're into invention, if being a mother is a form of art, right? Being artful in whatever role you're in. I don't care if you make curtains for a living. There's a way uh, to be the highest version of yourself. That's what I mean by being artful, is that you're sort of creatively living in that flow state of best self. And so that's the technology, <laughs> the emerging tech uh, that I'm excited about. The, the in emerging ancient technologies i love it <laughs> i freaking yeah. love it um movement and dance you know i had an experience recently that now that i'm thinking about it like is so much probably what you i mean it is what you do um ecstatic dance la and venice beach and i went by myself and i didn't talk to anyone i kind of just did my own thing but i sat down for a meditation and started doing all these like these movements just kind of took me in this direction and I closed my eyes and I wasn't dancing with anyone and um I felt it was so emotional like this I was crying at one point and then I opened my eyes when the song is over and I look behind me and there are two people sitting behind me cross-legged in the sand doing the exact same thing and one of them is crying as well. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. Wow. Um, and it kind of almost felt like an out-of-body experience, like definitely flow state. And it felt ancient. Oh, my gosh. That is what 
the the word that's connecting to me right now is like it felt like I was a druid or something. Um, yeah. yeah and I think that when we explore the present moment, right, you can have ancient technology move through you, you can have memory move through you, you can surrender to a moment to the point that you allow yourself to be moved, right? And I know it sounds very Yoda-esque, but there really is a moment when you walk pilgrim, example, where you actually stop efforting and stop walking the road and counting your kilometers and pushing the body. There is a moment on every Camino I've ever walked where you stop walking the road and the road walks you. And it's total you with something bigger than you that just sort of takes over. And I think that humans have been doing that with music, dance, I mean, these are the common languages of universe, right? As mass movement and music sound, right? Being at the base of any of everything and all things. And so being lost in that moment, you're not really lost. You're sort of turning yourself over to something bigger. And I think that that happens when we're willing. That is the ancient text coming back around, right? It's your birthright coming back to you. That's so cool. So cool. And I think um, challenging for people to try because it is a very vulnerable state. For I th- sure. I think um, I grew up in, uh, in the church, in a non-denominational church. And when you mentioned kind of how there's this leadership structure and you always feel like you're reporting back and like you have these moments of like bliss and awakening, but I always felt like I was giving it to another person for some reason. And I, I think that the work that you're doing, where you're making it the responsibility of, well, not responsibility, but the experience of the individual is very, very important. Yeah. And I think that it's time for us as humans to get out of power structures, right? Like no one's going to come rescue us from what we're doing to the earth. No one's going to come into your body and get you out of anger or out of depression. Like it's, we're the ones we've been waiting for. And so I think with old religions, there's this idea that there's like this intermediary between you and the divine. It actually puts you in a parent child structure for the rest of your life. Right. And if you're disempowered, it's very hard to be your best, most beautiful self out in the world. If you feel little or small or you're a kid or you have to report to someone and so if we have this greater sense of laterality um, and we realize we're equal to everyone else, then we're also instantaneously um, more empowered, but we're also instantaneously more responsible. So we're actually responsible for the state of the world and we can't blame anyone else, including ourselves. And we've got to sort of be out there relating to the divine, relating to connection, relating to the earth, but also relating to our own actions in a solely responsible way. And so it's how we start adulting, right? Like all of us are meant to kind of step into that, get out of all victim stances, get out of all, you know, senses of power struggle. They're wrong. I'm wrong. They're wrong. I'm wrong. They're bad. I'm bad. Like all that dance. It's trapping us in toxicity and it's trapping us and always blaming something outside of us for the state of the world. The state of the world is as we are right? Reality is not as it is. It is as we are. We're creating it all the time. And so it's super empowering to get out of those religious concepts of someone being between you and your creator, but also the best way to connect to creators to realize you are one, right? You carry one atom of the deity. You're a little offshoot from source. 
So why don't we start creating the reality that we want, creating the world that we want, creating the life that we want, and creating the emotions that we want? And I think that that's actually the best way to become a true ecologist. So cool. Um, Are there any sustainable brands that you love that you would recommend? Oh my gosh, yes. Well, the Mountain Girl and me, I'm from Utah, so I'm going (laughs) to throw some love to a local brand, but I love cool clothing, K-U-H-L, because of um, sustainability and uh, I I know the folks there and I think that it's just, um, I know it's like one of my favorite outdoor uh, outdoor companies and um, I love Golden Thread. Um, I don't know. There's so many. I think that for me, the brands that I tend to love are about the people, mm. um, not just what they're out doing and how they look, but I also just love uh, how they move in the world. So uh, those are the two that, that first come to mind. So cool. I'm going to look them up. Well, um, I could talk, to, I mean, I could talk for another hour. Um, <laughs> so if anything maybe I'll have you on again because just the vibes are so wonderful and you're just such a great gift I think um to anyone that comes in contact with you so thank you that's very sweet well I'm so happy that you're out in the world holding court no pun intended and asking <laughs> so um but yeah it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you and Uh, thank you for being out creating conversation. I think it's one of the most beautiful things we can do. Thank you. Um, Where can we connect with you online? Um, So our website is gracelineinstitute.org and um, we teach all over the world and are happy to come to any city if anyone wants to host retreats or events or lectures or we work with individuals, we work with groups, we work in public schools. So we're pretty easy to find. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Michaela. Yeah, it was awesome to be with you. Have a beautiful day. You too. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Wow. A huge thank you to Michaela Grace for that very, very cool and enlightening interview. You gave us a lot to think about and a lot of tools that we can use for raising our collective energetic fields. My personal favorites, I think, have to be breathwork and dance. Now, you can book a one-on-one session with Michaela or a group session that includes a lecture and several spontaneous healing modalities, and then some, uh, from her website, www.gracelineinstitute.org. And I highly recommend it for anyone feeling stuck, lost, or in need of spiritual recentering. Thank you for listening. And that's a wrap. This is Erin in St. Augustine, Florida. 
ES Now is a Holding Court production and is written and produced by Courtney Berenger. The music is by Parker Ainsworth, fact-checked by Justin Howard, and a very special thanks to Alexandra Shuck.